One of my twins' favorite pastimes is to wrestle dad. In fact, all my kids' favorite pastime is to wrestle dad. And it's five on one, and uh, I'm still winning, but it's getting harder. And they are, they are relentless. Um, they do not accept defeat. I will put them on the ground and tickle them until they can't breathe, and they're begging for mercy, and I let them up, and you think it's done, and they come back for more. And again, and again, and again, and again. Well, as relentless as my, my twins are, what we find to be true in Scripture, and especially in our passage this morning, is that Jesus is even more relentless in his pursuit of us. John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman at the well. In fact, let's read the text. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let's just read down through verse 15. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, you've got both baptisms still taking place right now. And so Jesus, not wanting to cause discord and dissension, not wanting to give the Pharisees an open door to driving division into what was taking place and the good things that were going on between John's baptism and, and, and what Jesus and his disciples were doing, Jesus decides, well, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to leave. I'm going to move on from this region. Because as much as John had the mentality, I must decrease, so Christ must increase, Jesus at the same time didn't want to pit himself against John in any way, shape, or form. They were moving towards and aiming at the same goal. And so Jesus and his disciples, they move on, and it says they go up to Galilee. And verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. It's an interesting statement because geographically, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, culturally, he shouldn't have passed through Samaria because the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds, as we'll see here momentarily. But the straightest distance between two points is what? Or the fastest distance between two points is what? A straight line. And so the straight line from where Jesus was up to Galilee would have been, yes, through Samaria. But it was customary for the Jews to bypass Samaria. In fact, so much so that they would cross the Jordan, go up on the, the other opposite end of the Jordan, and then cross back over the Jordan River up near the region of Galilee because they wanted to avoid any possible interaction with any of the Samaritan people. And we'll find out why momentarily. But it says in our text, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Uh, this is a, a, a compulsion that's not geographic. It's not cultural. This is a compulsion that is divine. This is God's ordained plan for Jesus. Remember, Jesus came not to do his own will, John 6, but the will of him who sent him. And so God wants, the Father wants the Son to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, there's the humanity of Christ, by the way, that you see Jesus tired. And so Jesus, wearied from his journey, sits down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would have been noon. And a woman came from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, remember, John is our, our gospel writer who explains things for us dummy Gentiles. He gives us the parentheses because he knows that we're not going to pick up on everything that, he, that a Jewish audience would have necessarily understood. So he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you a living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus is there in Sychar, sits down next to this well. Here comes the woman. And Jesus initiates contact with this woman. And you notice in the text, it even catches her off guard. She stops and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a woman from Samaria? There's a lot of cultural red flags going off here right now. Number one, Jesus as a Jewish man to address a woman one-on-one like that, even if she was a Jewish woman, not normative, would have been out uh, out of practice for him. Number two, she's not just a woman, but she's a woman coming to a well at 12 o'clock midday with no one else with her, which speaks pretty loudly of the fact, as Jesus will confirm later on, that this is a woman of ill repute morally. Again, another reason for Jesus not to talk to this woman. But then number three, she is a woman of Samaria, and he is a Jew. The Jewish-Samaritan tension It goes all the way back prior to, but especially during the intertestamental period. But the the Samaritan people, one of the reasons why the Jews did not like the Samaritan people is they looked at the Samaritan people as half-breeds. And that comes from their lineage, which we can trace somewhat confidently back to 2 Kings chapter 17. In 2 Kings chapter 17, Assyria invades the northern kingdom. And when they come to Samaria, they resettle... Samaria with their own people. In fact, they drive out the Israelites and they they bring in the Assyrian people. Well, things don't go really well for the Assyrians during that time. And as was customary for the, the nations of that time, they connected a land with a God. And so as things are not going well for the Assyrian people, they say, well, we need to get some of those Jews back over here because they know the God of this land and how to make the God of this land happy. So they go and they bring some of the Jews from the northern kingdom that they had exiled, some of the priests specifically, they bring them back to Samaria and they basically encourage them, go ahead and and do what you were doing because we want the God of this land to be appeased. And so there's a a hybrid uh, Judaism that's taking place uh, under the reign of of Assyrian rulers uh, at, at this time. Well, as they bring the Israelite people back to this land where the Assyrians are living, the Israelite people begin to intermingle with the Assyrians and begin to marry the Assyrians and have offspring with the Assyrians. And the descendants of those people become the Samaritans. So the Jews looked at the Samaritans and they said, you're not true. You're not pure. You've been corrupted by Gentile blood. And And in fact, in the worst way possible, by these foreigners that came in and and drove you out and then brought you back and and then you hoard yourself out to them and became this half-breed called a Samaritan. Well, things didn't get better in the intertestamental period because you had the ruler that rose to, to power during this time, the Greek ruler that rose to power this time, who was one of the most notorious and infamous of all time, which was Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Antiochus IV comes on the scene. And Antiochus is infamous with the the Jews because he went down to Jerusalem and defiled the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, and then dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus, in the worship of Zeus. Well, there was another temple, as we'll find out here momentarily, that was in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, 
right? Where the Samaritans worshipped. And Antiochus IV, according to Josephus at least, who we need to say was not necessarily fair and unbiased because he himself was a Jew, but he's a Jewish historian. Josephus says that during that time, during that same time, that the Samaritans welcomed the rule of Antiochus IV and even voluntarily gave him permission to dedicate their temple there on Mount Gerizim to the worship of Zeus as well. So you have compromise all over the place here. So much so that John Hyrcanus, who was one of the, the rulers during the, the Hasmonean dynasty, during the intertestamental period, leads the, the, the revolt against the Samaritan people, destroys their temple there on Mount Gerizim. All of that is in the background of what Jesus is interacting with, with this woman of Samaria. So when he says, hey, can I have a drink? He's crossing all kinds, all kinds of divides and boundaries there. There was no reason for Jesus to initiate contact with this woman, but he does so, and he does so strategically by saying, hey, can, can I have a, a drink? Thirst is one of the most common felt needs that you can think of. It doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Samaritan. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your class. It doesn't matter your ideology. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. None of that matters. Everyone knows what it is to be thirsty. And so Jesus says, give me a drink. Appealing to this human need as he's going to here shortly spin in, in turn to go after a, a spiritual need that she has. In fact, thirst in scripture is so often used in that way. Psalm 42, two, my soul thirsts for God. It's a spiritual longing, a spiritual desire that the psalmist has. Psalm 63, one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Again, that spiritual longing for the Lord, for the Father. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters that God provides, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine, milk without money and, and without price. Again, the, the connection of thirsting, and God is the one that's going to satisfy that thirst. And then Matthew 5, 6, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's that longing, it's that desire as you thirst for water. There's the picture in the scriptures of our thirst for God. So Jesus says, give me a drink. Again, taking a, a physical need and spinning it to try to get after the greatest need that everyone has, regardless of who you are. And he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. No reason whatsoever for Jesus to even give her the time of day. No reason for him to acknowledge her presence at the, at the well. In fact, every reason for him to completely ignore her. But isn't that true of us too? Romans 5. For while we were weak, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God, Christ died for us. There's no reason for, for God to set his affection on us. Just as there was no reason for Jesus to initiate contact with this woman. Point number one this morning is this. Praise God for initiating our salvation. Praise God for initiating our salvation. Men, in so many ways, we are this woman at the well. She doesn't understand. She says, um, hey, how are you talking to me and asking me for a drink of water? And Jesus says this next statement in verse 10. He says, look, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, if you knew the gift of God, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now there's the contrast that's there because they're by a well and this is a significant well. This is Jacob's well fed by an underground spring. This is a good 
well. And yet Jesus is establishing this contrast and saying, yeah, you would have, you would have received living water. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the heart of every man, right? The, the problem is that every man, except for those that God has opened their eyes and, and removed their blindness, searches for satisfaction in that quest for eternity in the things that are temporal. And it's like going to this well when Jesus is offering her instead eternal living water. Jeremiah describes this tragedy this way. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and instead hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus is offering the woman living water, living water. Jeremiah 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of all Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Zechariah 14, 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter. Why? Because the Lord on his throne will be there, the source of living waters. We're John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water, again, that living water, on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your descendants. And then finally, it's going to be living water that will be there on that final day when we step into the new heavens and the new earth and in new Jerusalem. It says in Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life coming forth from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this living water is directly connected with Jesus. It's directly connected with God that he is the living water. And again, Jesus is speaking to something that if this was Nicodemus, he would have said, Nicodemus, you should know these things. He's addressing this woman at the well. She doesn't quite follow still, and she protests again. But Jesus continues in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's seizing upon, again, this common theme of thirst. A common experience for this woman of coming back to this well over and over and over again. And even more so for her who had to come at a time when she wouldn't be around other people for fear of the shame that would be heaped on her for her reputation and her sin. And Jesus is painting a picture where you would never have to come back to the well again. She's not understanding that he's going after something spiritual, though, and not physical. But the spiritual applies just like the physical. To go back to the well time and time and time again. In fact, there's that beverage that we don't talk about too much, right? That uh, they sell at baseball games and things like that. And the tagline of the commercial is, stay thirsty, my friends. Well, Jesus would say, don't stay thirsty. Come quench your thirst. And he's offering this to this woman, but he's initiating contact. And that's what I want you to see here. He's, he's the one that moves towards the woman. The woman doesn't move towards him. The woman doesn't even recognize what her greatest need is at this point. In fact, she rebuffs him. 
Because just like Nicodemus, she is unable to go from the physical plane to the spiritual plane. And so Jesus moves on and tries a, a different, different approach, rather. He moves on and he, he then addresses her greatest need, at least as far as sin is concerned, when he says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. When I'm wrestling with my twins, they will try certain angles with me. And then once they see that they can't get me that way, they'll start to, to move around me and, and change directions to try to come at me from different angles to see if that will work. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Why? Because Jesus is our relentless savior. The first approach was rebuffed by this woman. But Jesus, like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, always gets his man. And so he comes at it from a different angle. And he says, go call your husband. Go call your husband. In Star Wars Episode Seven: The Rise of Skywalker, there's a scene where Finn has crashed, landed on this planet. And those of you, I'm not a big enough Star Wars nerd to know what the planet's called. Um, you guys out there who do, it's okay. You can know and you win. Um, but Finn crash lands on the planet and he finds himself thirsty and he's looking for water anywhere he can try to find water. And he's going into the town and he's going to all, all the different people and aliens and asking them for water and nobody has water for him. And then he catches out of the corner of his eye this gigantic alien sea cow kind of looking animal that's drinking from a gigantic trough. And he goes over there and he kneels down next to this gross, rancid, stagnant water. It's got sea cow alien drool and slobber all in it. And his thirst drives him to drink from that water. And he even stops because he's disgusted with himself. But then he's so thirsty that he goes back and keeps drinking. And that's like drinking water from a broken cistern. Because a broken cistern is going to leak the water, and all that's really going to be left is this sludge and mud and rancid, putrid pool of disgusting filth at the bottom. And so Jesus, though he's moved on from the analogy of our spiritual thirst, is still in some ways dealing with his concept of spiritual thirst. Because he's pressing in on some of the broken cisterns, some of the alien sea troughs in this woman's life by saying, hey, go call your husband. She says, I, 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 I don't have a husband. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. See, Jesus is just like in Hebrews 4, taking his word as the divine scalpel and laying this woman bare. She didn't understand the metaphor of you've got a spiritual thirst and I'm here to satisfy it. So now he's saying you have a real problem and need and that is the sin and immorality in your life and I am the answer to that as well. Again, we already read in Jeremiah 2.13 where the prophet called out Israel for looking for water in, in broken cisterns. Man, I want us to understand that these broken cisterns are the sins in our lives. These are the things that we look to for satisfaction instead of seeking satisfaction from Christ. These are the areas that we look for, like this woman with this, these men was looking for security and happiness and satisfaction and joy and pleasure. And it was failing over and over and over and over and it left her saying, I, I, it's not working, it's not satisfying, I need more and that's what the broken cisterns do in our lives, men. And so I wonder this morning, what are your broken cisterns? 
They're going to be different for each man in this room. But the call is the same, and it's the call that Jesus was trying to get to her. It's the call that Jesus has on us this morning as well. It's point number two this morning. It's this, forsake your broken cisterns of sin. Forsake your broken cisterns of sin because they do not satisfy. They can't satisfy. Some of, at least, this woman's broken cisterns were these immoral and broken relationships. Again, where she had sought satisfaction and happiness and security. I have no husband. She thinks that's going to cover things. She doesn't know who she's talking to yet. Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Yeah, it's possible to say, well, you know, Jesus was just observing the fact that she came out at this time of day, and so that's how he knew. No, I think just as we saw his humanity by being wearied and sitting down at the well, we're seeing his divinity through his omniscience being pulled back a little bit here. And he reveals what's going on in this woman's life. Then in turning to Jesus, the fountain of living waters, if we are going to have our thirst satisfied by Christ, it is 100% necessary that we repent from the broken cisterns in our lives. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. In fact, we just read this recently in our DBR. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, notice, forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Yes, men, God will save you where you are, but he will not leave you where you are. Salvation is becoming a new creation in Christ. It's a radical transformation. And this woman's not there yet because she's not saved yet. But Jesus is trying to get her to see her need to be saved, to be delivered by, by calling her out on what is, is abundantly evident in her life and what she knew as well. That look, these broken sisters don't satisfy you. That's why you've had five husbands and you're living out of wedlock with a man right now. And so men, whatever the broken cisterns are in your life, you know they don't satisfy you. Chasing that next promotion, that bigger house, that bigger car, another kid, a more successful child, pornography, sex, alcohol, drugs, you know that those things don't satisfy you. That they're mirages that hide the broken cisterns behind them. And yet, just like Finn with that alien trough, we so often keep going back to them thinking it's going to be different the next time. It's not going to be different. Men, if you have Christ, Christ is the fountain of living waters. And he's saying, leave these things behind. You don't need them anymore. You want happiness, satisfaction, security, joy, fulfillment? I will provide those things for you. Yeah, they may not look like what the world defines them as. But they'll look like what my father defines them as. Again, a different approach from Jesus, but he's after the same target. He moves on from this metaphor of water and thirst to now going after her heart by saying, hey, you've got a sin problem. But in both approaches, he's trying to get her to realize she needs him. Martin Luther wrote this in in one of his 95 theses. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers should be 
repentance. In other words, we're never done repenting, at least this side of eternity. And rather than discourage you, I hope that encourages you. Because if the standard was, you should only need to repent once and then you should be good, man, all of us in this room are in trouble. And so this is a daily saying, you know what, daily, today I'm going to identify what my temptations towards broken cisterns are today. I'm going to repent from them, put them to death, put them off, and choose the fountain of living waters in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior today. That's daily. That's not just morning by morning. That's minute by minute, hour by hour. That's, that's throughout my day. The entire life of the Christian is one of repentance. Because the alternative is to turn to these broken cisterns where satisfaction might be there temporarily, but it won't last. It won't last. Men, Jesus is here to satisfy our deepest longings and his desire is that we turn from our broken cisterns to find that satisfaction in him, to find that fulfillment in him, to find that joy and security in him. Again, not necessarily how the world's gonna define those terms, but how his father has defined those things, which is far better than the world in its definition. She rebuffs him again, though, And she does so by doing what we so often want to do with Jesus, and that's change the subject. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So again, the spotlight's on her. Jesus, the divine surgeon, has the scalpel piercing and laying her open, and she wants to get off the table as quickly as she can. So she says, Sir, well, I perceive you're a prophet. Yeah, duh. At this point, right? And then she asks this question. She says, hey, uh, again, wanting to change the subject, get the focus off what her and her sins are. Uh, she says, I, I, look, this, this mountain where we're at right, right now, Mount Gerizim, this is where our ancestors used to worship. Because remember, in her testamental period, that temple got destroyed. There is no temple there anymore. But the Samaritans still considered that to be their place of, of holy worship. And so she says, our ancestors worshiped here on this mountain. You Jews worship down in Jerusalem. She says, what, what's the answer? What's the answer? Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, so approach number one. You've got a spiritual thirst. I'm the answer. She's not going there with him. She rebuffs him. Jesus says, okay, relentless savior. Approach number two, I'm gonna come at it from a different angle. Go call your husband. Oh, you don't have a husband because you've had five and the guy you're with now is not your husband. A little bit more direct, a little bit more in your face, in your kitchen with Jesus. He's going, you've got a sin problem and I'm the answer to that. She rebuffs that. Now third approach from Jesus. Why? Because he's the relentless savior. She asks a question about worship and Jesus is kind of going, okay, now here we go. Ready? Buckle up. But first he condescends. And he engages with her. He's patient with her. Man, how patient was Jesus with us as we were running from him still? To still come after us. Was someone else in our life to share the gospel with us again? Was someone else in our life to, to be there to answer a question that we had? So he, he answers her question. He says, look, there's an hour coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We'll get to that again in just a minute. But then he gives this answer to her. He says, look, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, Jesus says, you want to know the answer? The Jews got it right. You guys are wrong. The Samaritan temple was never a legitimate temple. Jesus says the legitimate temple, the legitimate house of the Lord, as it used to be at least, is in Jerusalem. But ironically, she's asking this question about where should we go to worship? Where should we go to entertain and be in the presence of the glory of God? And she's got the presence of the glory of God standing right in front of her. It's like the Jews on the Temple Mount after Jesus turned over the tables. And they said, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus is saying, you're worried about this brick and mortar? This brick and mortar is going to be torn down. So is this one. This one's more significant, though. She's got the presence of the glory of God standing right in front of her. And that's why Jesus continues, verse 23, the hour is coming, and look, it's here now. When worship is not about a location anymore. Why? Because the glory of God isn't in the Holy of Holies. It's standing in front of her, veiled incarnate. The hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, Jesus is saying the, the true worship of God is not about a building. It's not about a location. It's not about a denomination, a tradition, or a religious site. It's about the internal state of the worshiper. And that's where Jesus is now at with her. Again, strategy number one, you've got a spiritual thirst and I'm the answer to that thirst. She doesn't get it. Okay, change approach. Approach number two, you have a massive sin problem and I am the answer to that sin problem. Again, she doesn't get it. Third approach, you have a worship problem and I am the answer to your worship problem. You have a worship problem in that just from the fact that you're a Samaritan, you're not even worshiping in the right way or in the right location if that was the parameter and the standard. Uh, but the parameter and the standard is much bigger than that. It's about your heart. And as we were just dealing with, with your issue with your husband and the guy that you're with now, you've got a heart problem. And that heart problem, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter one, is at its root of worship problem. Because as Paul indicts all of creation, he says, they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. See, men, sin at its root is fundamentally a worship problem. Our primary problem with God is that we don't worship him. We worship everything and anything else with ourselves as priority number one in that so often. And that's this woman's problem. That's her greatest problem, bigger than the men she's been sleeping with. Bigger than the fact that she's got to come to a well at midday, she needs to know what it is to worship God correctly. Point number three tonight, or this morning, is this. Worship rightly in response to your salvation. Worship rightly in response to your salvation. Well, what is right worship? It's worship that, as Jesus is describing, it is rendered in spirit and truth. The, the first one there, well, let me deal with the second one first because I don't think we have a, necessarily a struggle with the second one, truth, right? We're supposed to worship God in accordance with what the Bible teaches us. Doctrine, right? Theology. We're gonna hold up our worship in the songs that we sing, in the messages that we preach and say, does, the, does it agree with this? If it doesn't agree with this, then it's, it's to be rejected completely. That's to worship in truth. To worship in spirit, though, is a whole different ballgame. Because you can worship in truth devoid of spirit. You can't worship in spirit devoid of truth. To worship in spirit 
is again, first and foremost, a, a matter of the internal heart, the internal state of the person. Jeremiah 6.20, Isaiah 1.11-15, Amos 5.21-23, and even implicit in our daily Bible reading this morning in the passage from Isaiah, God takes issue with the worship of his people in those passages. In fact, in some of them, he goes so far as to say, your offerings, your Sabbath feasts, your, your sacrifices, I hate them. Why? Were they not offered in truth? No, they were offered according to the Old Testament law. They fit the truth category. But Isaiah 29, 13, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 15, 8, identifies the real problem. And that is Jesus says, this, this people, they honor me with their lips, but what? Their heart is where? Far from me. See, they were worshiping in truth without the spirit. That's possible and tragic when it happens because God says, I hate that. No, instead, men, we need to worship in spirit and in truth. Think about your, your, your quiet time. How much of your prayer time is spent worshiping God? How often do you stop when reading the DBR and thank him for what you're reading? Praise him for something that you just read. Or is it so often more of a, I'm going to check the box so that when I've got accountability with my, my, my brother, I can tell him that I did the DBR. Or it's to soothe the conscience so that I can go to work this morning feeling like I got that done. It's checked off my to-do list. Now I can go focus on more important things. What do you listen to, man, in the car as you're driving around, as you're going through your commutes? Look, we all get it. Our administration is horrible and it's getting worse. We don't need Joe Rogan to tell us that over again. Or whoever you listen to. You want to do something about it? We've got time between now and the next election. So can we turn off the stuff that makes us mad and want us to yell at the radio and start worshiping God a little bit more? redeeming that time for something that when you stand before Christ and, and, and he asks you, hey, what did you do with your commute that I gave you every single day back and forth to work? How'd you spend that time? Can we start doing some things that we're gonna be able to, to, to lay before him and say, I was, I was worshiping you. And getting mad about politics, men, is not worshiping God. Your church attendance. Why, why, why do you come here? What are you after here? Because, man, God is not in the business of tit for tat. If you're coming here because you're expecting it to rub off at work and, and work out well for a prom promotion because God will be happy with you because you show up, God's looking at that going, I hate that. If you're here because you just want your, your wife to stop nagging you, and you think that maybe you'll get some benefit out of it by showing up. God's looking at that going, I hate that. Or if you're here because you think, well, I'm here because this is a church that preaches from the right Bible, that sings the right songs, and that has the right type of preaching, and it's puffing you up in your pride and your arrogance, then you're here for the wrong reasons. God's looking at that going, man, I, I, I hate that. 
We need to be here to worship God in spirit and in truth with a brokenness, with a humility that recognizes the value of Jesus. That's here. Why am I here? The answer needs to be, I'm here because I love Jesus and want to worship him, exalt him. And I'm here and I'm able to do that through the preaching of the word. I'm, I'm able to do that through gathering with my brothers and experiencing fellowship with them and being encouraged by them and encouraging them and praying for one another. That causes me to love Jesus more. If there's any other reason, men, don't come. Because it's not the right reason. It needs to be about worshiping Christ, exalting Jesus. And yeah, this woman had been worshiping at an illegitimate temple, but men, her worship was no less illegitimate and futile than the, the worship of the Pharisees that were self-righteous and on the temple mount next to the, the Jewish temple, and yet their heart was also far from God. Yeah, this woman was worshiping at an illegitimate location, but men, her worship was no less futile than ours if we show up here for the wrong motives and the wrong reasons. Later in John 20, we'll encounter doubting Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? Crucifixion's taking place, resurrection's taking place. Jesus has appeared to most of his, his 12. 11. And he go, they come to Thomas and they say, hey, Thomas, guess what? Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Thomas gets a bad rap. I, I probably would have been close to where Thomas was at the time, right? Well, Jesus shows up and, and just like with the woman at the well, Jesus didn't need to condescend to Thomas. He could have looked at Thomas and been like, you fool. Get out of here. But instead he walks up, he says, Thomas, come here. Thomas goes up and, and feels his wounds, puts his hand in his side, feels the, the wound in the side. The light bulb goes on. Thomas realizes this is the one. And he confesses something right away. What does he do? He says, my Lord and my God. See, that transformative encounter with Christ produced worship from Thomas. I think it does with this woman as well. Notice real quick here, at the end, the woman says to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, Jews seek signs but I'm not going to give you any sign. You want a sign, woman? I'm going to be in the belly of a fish for three days. Or like the belly of the fish in the ground. Jesus doesn't respond to this woman the way he responds to the Jewish leaders. In fact, this is the first one in John that we see him plainly say, I am the Messiah. And I think we see the worship of this woman because she goes and she tells everyone she can possibly tell, find and, and tell that Jesus is the Messiah. Man, in so many ways, we are the woman at the well. You can take that home. Your wife will say, what did you learn about in men's Bible study? Well, Pastor PJ told me I'm a woman at the well. <laughs> okay, maybe you shouldn't go back to men's Bible study next week. 
No, in the sense that we had just as much need as she did. None of us were better off than she was when Christ first came after us. We had the spiritual thirst. We had the sin problems. We had the worship problems. And isn't it such a good thing that we have a relentless Savior that didn't stop at our initial rebuffs of him, but that kept pursuing us? It's my prayer that every single one of you in this room have surrendered to that pursuit. And if not, man, let me exhort, plead with you. Surrender this morning. Because by nature of the fact that you are here this morning is evidence of the fact that Jesus is still pursuing you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for that reality that you have pursued all of us until you got your man. Because you never fail in that. As you'll say in John chapter 6, Jesus, those that the Father gave you will come to you. Every single one of them, and you will not lose a single person. What a glorious reality that is. We're thankful for your work on our behalf at the cross. And Father, we pray that this week we would live lives that are lives saturated with a right worship of you that are mindful of our need for the fountain of living waters, that we would identify those broken cisterns in our lives and flee from them, forsake them, see them for what they are, not by the lie of the enemy that they will satisfy us or bring us pleasure or joy or happiness or anything else. God, let us forsake those and flee from them to Christ, who is the fountain of living waters. Lord, we are so thankful that Jesus' identity is not just king and Lord, and ruler, and master, and sovereign, and God, but Messiah as well. Because all of us need, needed that. So we thank you for that. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.